0: The following is a Westminster Seminary, California, morning devotion given by the Rev. Zach Keel. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. So on our time this morning, we'll turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 22 and uh, read verse 63 through chapter 23, verse 5. So chapter 22, beginning in verse 63 to 23, 5. It's God's word. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept him asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then he said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, "'We found this man misleading our nation "'and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar "'and saying that he himself is Christ, a king.'" And uh, and Pilate asked him, "'Are you king of the Jews?' He answered him, "'You have said so.'" Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, "'I find no guilt in this man.'" That they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Let us pray. Heavenly Fathers, we approach your word again this morning. We pray that you would give us humble and teachable hearts, that with the spirit of faith, with the fear of God in our breast, and with open ears and attentive minds, we might listen to your truth, so that we might be built up. By what Christ says to us, and also be nourished by the silence of our Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, as a seminary students, now as you approach a text like this one, often the first place you go for help are technical resources. You go to the lexicons, to syntax, to different commentaries, etc. And this is all good and necessary, but sometimes these technical resources make us forget that scripture is also literature. That reading a short story by Flannery O'Connor or a New York Times bestseller can also make us better students and readers of God's word. And one thing that Luke shows us through his gospel is that he is quite capable at the literary art. Thus, literature reminds us that it uses things like characterization, tension, to teach its theology, to bring us into the story, and to imprint upon us his message. Well, one of the techniques of good literature is irony, particularly dramatic irony. And as you are aware, dramatic irony comes when there is a tension between what the characters know in the story and between what you know as a reader, because the author or narrator has given you more information. Well, in this last, or this this section of Jesus' trial, the dramatic irony of Luke is very pronounced, and it's one that brings us into the story to hear what the silence of Jesus says to us, as well as to exercise our faith in his unfailing word. So we began our passage here in verse 63. Jesus has been in custody all night, but as far as Luke is concerned, no trial has officially began. There's been no witnesses, no evidences, but the guards that are holding Jesus all of a sudden feel like they want to beat him. Of course, beating someone before the trial begins, before there's even an allegation, suggests police brutality. Of course it is this, but it is more. Note that this is also a test. This is an ordeal for they blindfold him and they beat him and then they say prophesy. We dare you to prophesy who is going to hit you next and who is the one that swung the bat that bounced off your head. Now, as you know, the anticipation of pain sometimes is worse than the pain itself. The big bee is buzzing around your head. You don't know when it's going to sting, but it freaks you out. And that's even worse than the bee sting. Well, Jesus doesn't know who's going to hit him next. He cannot see and he's being dared. He's being tested. Come on, prove yourself to be a true prophet. Guess who's going to hit you. Of course, this test is really a sadistic game. For the Lord never gave the prophetic gift as a way to do parlor tricks. He doesn't give prophets the ability to see the future in order to play games, to win, pin the tail on the donkey, or monopoly. He doesn't give us the word as God's preacher to play games, to amuse. The prophetic gift is about serious things. God's will, sin, redemption. Thus, Jesus remains quiet. He doesn't say a word. Of course, for all the characters on the story, what does this look Like, Well, Jesus isn't a true prophet. He's false. Come on, you can't even guess through the blindfold who's going to hit you next? You can't pick a name out of a hat? You're not a very good uh, prophet at all. And yet the silence of Jesus here makes us as readers remember a previous word that he said. All the way back in chapter 9, he told his disciples, the Son of Man must be betrayed, using the same words here, beaten, mocked, ridiculed, and handed over to death. He repeated it, and he's repeated this prediction several times since chapter 9 in this gospel. So where the guards think Jesus is a pathetic false prophet, we know that his silence makes us remember his previous word and see that this beating is actually a fulfillment of Jesus' word. And thus his silence speaks louder than any words he could say here. And this continues as he moves to the next section. After they're finished poking holes in Jesus, they drag him off to the Sanhedrin for the first um, official trial at daybreak. And note here how the Sanhedrin, how they've already made up their mind. They've already prejudged Jesus that if he acknowledges that the Christ, this is a, a false charge, or this is a false confession that deserves death. Again, the irony is that If he confesses it, they won't believe, which makes them false judges if they don't actually hear Jesus' confession as as true. Thus note, he says, if you are the Christ, tell us, and Jesus basically pleads the fifth. He doesn't confirm it or deny it. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. Here, his silence about confessing he's the Christ condemns them. If he said, I am the Christ, guess what? That's sufficient for faith. But they wouldn't believe, and so they stand condemned. So here, Jesus not confessing his Christ does two things. One, it doesn't accept their definition of Christ. And two, it condemns them for not having faith. Then Jesus, though, does go on and give us some information, or he says to them, from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. Of course, in this we see more irony. As the Sanhedrin tried to convict Jesus to send him to the grave as a false messiah, this is the actual means that Christ is using to ascend to heaven. As they convict Jesus falsely, as they send him to the cross, this is the precise path that Jesus will be glorified by. But the path by which he will show that he's the son of God the heavenly judge at the Father's right hand. Of course, they hear this, and again, they impute their own definition. Are you the Son of God, then, they say? Now, note in Luke's gospel, the Messiah as a title and Son of God are not exactly synonymous, especially in the average Jewish understanding. The Messiah didn't have to be divine. He could be a mere human. An heir of David who'd be king, who'd free them from Rome and set up a new theocracy centered in Jerusalem. And yet the Son of God was reserved for those those, uh, uh, titles and those figures of the Old Testament that seemed more than a human. There was something divine about the title of the Son of God, that he was Son in a unique and special way. Thus to claim to be the Son of God is to arrogate yourself to divinity, at least in their mind. Thus, when Jesus says, you say that I am, he again does it confirm or deny it. But for there, if, if someone says, are you trying to be like God and you don't deny it? That's basically guilty. And so they hear his non-committal, his pleading the fifth as an admission of guilt. Note they say, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from our, from his own lips. Of course, what's the charge that they're thinking about here? Well, of course, blasphemy. You just claimed to be the son of God. You didn't deny being the son of God. Well, there's no way you could be. Thus, you are guilty of blasphemy. Again, the irony though, if you call the true son of God a liar, isn't that blasphemy? They charge Jesus for blasphemy and yet they're the ones who are committing blasphemy. And it only continues. Now they drag him off to Pilate, and note how their rhetoric or their speech patterns change. Previously, they've been trying to trap Jesus in his words. Are you the Christ? They're trying to trick Jesus, but now their charge becomes almost outright falsehood. Note they accuse him of misleading our nation. This is an accusation of rioting, of being a disturbance, and you all know Rome had a zero tolerance policy for riots, for, for those sorts of things. Now, in one sense, Jesus did cause an uproar. A lot of people followed him. So there's a touch of truth to this, though no political element to it. But the next one is outright false, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. They explicitly tested him in chapter 20, and he said, render under Caesar. Typically, the evil one's devious by using a half-truth and twisting it. But these priests just forget about the truth altogether in this one. Of course, they use this line in their next. He confesses himself to be the Christ, the king. Well, a king who tells you not to pay Caesar means pay me instead. Revolt, grab arms, throw off the yoke of Rome. So they color him as an insurgent. One, a rival king who will lead a mob against Rome and throw off Rome. Well, this is a charge obviously Pilate is interested in. Pilate wouldn't be interested in any religious charge like blasphemy. He'd say, talk about that amongst yourselves. But this one, he's interested. He has to listen. Of course, know what Pilate does here. He asks him one simple question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, again, in his non-committal, you have said so. And Pilate says, good enough for me. I find no guilt in this man. It's almost like Pilate didn't do his due diligence. Come on, Pilate, you can't just ask the accused, are you guilty or innocent? He says he's innocent. Good enough for me. You have to do more. Of course, Pilate is no fool. He's seen a lot of insurgents in his day. He looks at Jesus and he's like, come on. There's no way that he's an insurgent, that he's a terrorist or a mobster. This is not what Jesus is. So Pilate can see the truth. And then he turns, but again, the, the priests are, are um, insistent. They insist no, he stirs up riots beginning in Galilee. And you all know about Galilee it's a hotbed for terrorists. All the rebels come for Galilee. This guy's from Galilee, i.e., he's guilty. But then think about this, again, Jesus basically remains silent. He doesn't say anything, he doesn't defend himself. Think how hard it is for you to remain silent when you are falsely accused. Imagine one of your classmates going up to your professor and saying he cheated on the exam, but you didn't. Could you remain silent? No, not necessarily should you, But think how hard that would be. But here's Jesus, the righteous one, being accused of the most atrocious and far-fetched ideas, and he's quiet. But why? For us to believe. For us to remember his previous word that how is our salvation accomplished? By him dying. By him being a lamb led to the slaughter who's silent before his shears, And this silence shows Jesus' trust in the Father that he will bring them through this ordeal and grant him that kingdom. It shows his submission to undergo this ordeal as well as it condemns his accusers for having no faith. Thus, the silence of Jesus here calls us to remember that Jesus' word never fails. Even in this dark moment, as he looks like he's being preyed upon, a victim of everybody else's power, a victim of everybody else's words and accusations, his silence says, my word is sufficient and it will not fail. And this is what our faith needs, to remember that Christ's word doesn't fail. For as you know, as we look around the world, as we look in our own lives, so often we feel like the world's rhetoric wins. They use more words. They have powerful words, things to back up their words. They make all the accusations. All we do is preach a Jewish carpenter who died on the cross and raised the third day. The world's rhetoric seems like it wins. The world says Jesus failed. And yet we know his word never fails. That he is at the right hand of God. And when the Son of God comes back in glory, he will fulfill all his promises for us. As well as the powerful silence of Christ here that causes us to put our faith in his previous word, gives us the strength then to speak for Jesus to be witnesses, as he'll tell his apostles, to Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Thus, the fact that Jesus' word didn't fail here means it will not fail in our lives, in our ministries. So often as we try to speak to the unconverted, as we try to comfort the mourning, as we try to rebuke the wayward, our words feel so useless. Just wait till you're counseling someone and you're trying to tell them what they need to do. They won't listen. And yet, even though our words sometimes seem to be in vain, they are the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And Christ has made all his words yes and amen for you. Thus, this is your assurance in your life now as you look to glory, and it's your confidence As you look forward to how the Lord may use you as a minister, as a parent, as a teacher, as a member of Christ's body, he will use his word through you to build up the brokenhearted, to strengthen the weak, to save the lost, and chiefly to announce Christ for God's own glory. And what better purpose is there for speech, than to give glory to God. Amen. Let's pray. Glorious Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that Jesus is silent here to testify that he has spoken once and he need not speak again. That it is true, it is unfailing, that this heaven and earth will pass away, but Christ's word will never pass away. Thus may our, heart, may our faith be rooted in the word of Christ. May we take comfort in him being silent unto death for our salvation. And may we rejoice that having raised that third day and ascended to your right hand, we can know for certain that he will come again to raise us up and to give glory to you forevermore. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.